Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Robert Darden talks with Texas history writers. You'll hear dramatic and often little-known Texas tales. This is Treasures of the Texas Collection. Hi, I'm Robert Darden, Associate Professor of Journalism at Baylor University, and welcome to Treasures of the Texas Collection. The Battle of Corinth does not rank in the Civil War's pantheon of its most celebrated engagements. Yet historians have long considered it both an unusually deadly and an unusually distinguished battle marked by valor and bravery. Corinth left some 7,500 soldiers, about 5,000 of them Confederates, dead, wounded, missing, or captured. And the bravest man there that Saturday was a 44-year-old Houston lawyer and former Baylor University law professor, William Peleg Rogers. Rogers' valiant death actually caught the attention of a nation growing inured to battlefield heroism. His exploits even drew rare tributes from his enemies, and a towering stone monument at Corinth commemorates his death in that small Mississippi town. Today, we pause to recount his story, pulled from the files of the Texas Collection by novelist and screenwriter Mark Andrew Olson. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me, Bob. Actually, Bill Rogers was probably Texas's greatest military hero of the Civil War, next to Albert Sidney Johnston. Sure. The two were actually killed six months and 20 miles apart. Johnson had bled to death from a leg wound in April 1862 at Bloody Shiloh, the greatest battle on the American continent to that date. But perhaps one reason why Rogers' stature as one of Texas's all-time military heroes is not better known is that unlike Johnston's, his body was never returned to the Lone Star State. Hmm. Rogers is buried where he fell at the edge of a strong point in Corinth's defenses, known as Battery Robinette. But Rogers stands out not only for what he did from a pure military point of view, but the absolutely fearless and gallant way in which he did it. All right. Let's start with a story. And let's start with Rogers' background in early life, if you will. Sure. Rogers was an unusual man, a man of contradictions any way you looked at him. Three states claimed him as a native. Sources in Mississippi insist he was born in Monroe County, a few miles south of Aberdeen, the son of a prosperous landowner and slaveholder. A Texas descendant who edited his diary and letters declares in the April 1929 Southwestern Historical Quarterly that Rogers was born in Georgia, on December 27, 1819, while his family was visiting there, while his monument at Corinth says he was born in Alabama. <laughs> One of his daughters always listed Georgia as his birthplace, and that's generally accepted. William Rogers married uh, Martha Halbert of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, in 1840. Well, Rogers' older brother had become a lawyer, so his father decided Bill should be the physician in the family. This was, quote, against his inclination, but Bill dutifully obtained a medical degree and practiced briefly in Ponatok, Mississippi. But he, had, he also had wanted to be a lawyer. Eventually, he sold his medical practice and studied law to the displeasure for a while of his father and became a lawyer at about 22 years of age. 
Lawyer or not, Rogers obviously had a patriotic zeal for fighting. He certainly did. Whenever war was declared, Rogers was there. When the war with Mexico erupted, William Rogers was a young lawyer of two years' standing, rapidly gaining prominence at the bar in Aberdeen. As soon as the call for volunteers came out, he raised a company from among his friends and acquaintances in the neighborhood and offered to go to the front. This group, later known as Company K, the Tom Bigby Guards, was a member of the famous 1st Mississippi Regiment. This regiment, known as the Mississippi Rifles, was commanded by none other than Colonel Jefferson Davis hmm. and Lieutenant Colonel A.K. McClung, the noted duelist. Rogers was quickly made captain and the unit was soon sent to the Rio Grande to become part of General Taylor's army. Rogers quickly acquired a reputation for bravery and leadership in Mexico. He was first cited for bravery in the capture of Monterey. With General Zachary Taylor observing, McClung and Rogers, in that order, were the first and second Americans to enter the Mexican Fort Teneria while under heavy enemy fire. In the, in the Battle of Buena Vista, the Mississippi rival, Rifles formed one wing of the famous V, which helped to break up the Mexican cavalry charge of General Minion and saved an outnumbered American army. So Rogers promptly caught the attention of both Davis and Taylor. Shortly after Taylor became president of the United States in 1848, he named Rogers as consul to Veracruz, where he served from 1849 to 1851. Rogers resigned in September of 1851 after an investigation of an alleged embezzlement by one of his agents. At the time he was appointed, Consul Rogers would have taken his family to Mexico if his wife had not positively refused to move to a foreign land. She did consent to go as far as Texas. The autumn of 1851 found the small Rogers family on its way to the Lone Star State. Well, transportation and roads being what they were back then, when did Rogers actually get here? Well, there are conflicting accounts about that, but it, it appears that somewhere around 1853, Rogers opened a law office in Washington on the Brazos, of course the birthplace of Texas, and in those days a busy and influential town. And it was somewhere during this period that Rogers began his long relationship with Baylor University, I guess. That's true. While in Washington, Rogers became active in the affairs of uh, the growing young Baylor University, which was still there in nearby Independence. A staunch believer in female education, Rogers sent his three daughters to Baylor's female department. His three sons also attended, attended Baylor. Baylor's minutes record that on June 10, 1852, Captain Rogers delivered a quote, able and eloquent address on the important and interesting theme of female education. The trustees were so impressed that they allocated $40 of their scarce resources to have the talk printed for distribution. Hmm. So when Baylor's trustees started a law department in 1857, they named as professors R.T. Wheeler, a member and later Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court, Judge Baylor himself, and one William P. Rogers. Tell us about Rogers' relationship with a certain gentleman named Sam Houston. Yes. Well, in, in 1856, Rogers moved to the booming town of Houston, where he became one of the leading criminal lawyers in the state, as well as a popular speaker. In the process, he also turned into a confidant of Sam Houston himself. 
Rogers is listed in conflicting versions as being either a cousin of either Houston or his wife. Rogers named one of his daughters Margaret Houston Rogers. Likewise, Houston later named his seventh child and third son William Rogers Houston in his honor. Sadly, William also died in the line of duty. But Houston was more than a relative. As I said, he quickly became a confidant as well as a law client. In fact, Houston named Rogers as one of two executors of his final will. Now, I know Houston is known as a very strong-willed individual. Do you think the two men always thought alike on the major issues of their time? Oh, not at all. (laughs) As a matter of fact, they eventually became badly split. Like Houston, Rogers was dismayed at the idea of Texas uh, seceding when the prospect of war between the states became inevitable. But unlike Houston... And like Robert E. Lee, he decided that if his state went to war, he would do his part. And of course, Houston famously resigned as governor rather than join the Confederacy, although he later redeemed his place in history by also turning down an offer of a Union generalship. But Rogers had no such misgivings. He was a Harris County delegate to the Texas Secession Convention in January 1861 and cast a reluctant vote for the Confederacy. Unfortunately, he didn't have to march back to Mississippi to prove his bravery and, uh, and give his life. When the war began, his former commander, Jeff Davis, offered him the command of a Texas regiment in Virginia. Instead, supposedly at the urging of his wife, he became the lieutenant colonel of the 2nd Texas Regiment. Delayed by a spell of illness, Rogers joined his outfit right on the eve of Shiloh. And there he distinguished himself again and was elevated to colonel. He had command of the Texas 2nd Texas Sharpshooters when fate made Corinth a crucial pawn in, in the war. This dusty village set back in the forest just below the Mississippi-Tennessee border suddenly became important because it was a junction of two of the railroads that were so strategic in that pre-highway horse and wagon era. Mark, why don't you set the stage? Because this is a pivotal moment in the Civil War certainly is. Even as Robert E. Lee was giving the Yankees painful lessons in military strategy in the East, Ulysses Grant was wreaking havoc with the Confederacy in the West. He was aiming at gaining control of the Mississippi River and severing the Confederacy in half. Albert Sidney Johnston had used Corinth, which one war-weary rebel had called, quote, the worst place I have ever seen, as his base for the ill-fated assaults at Shiloh. And after that bloody setback, where Johnston himself died, the battered Confederates fell back to Corinth. In May 1862, a Yankee army numbering about 10,000 headed for Corinth, and the feisty but outnumbered Southern General Pierre-Gustave Touton Beauregard great name. Yes, withdrew southward to Tupelo. Jeff Davis and his government were appalled. Now Memphis and other southern strongholds were doomed, and the Mississippi was open to the Union all the way to Vicksburg. The Confederacy badly needed little Corinth back, and General Earl Van Dorn went out to regain it. He was opposed there by a West Point classmate, General William Rosecrans, the man who would later bear witness and pay tribute to the valiant heroics of the 2nd Texas and their incredible colonel. No. I'm pretty sure this is where things begin to get sticky. Exactly. Van Dorn had attempted a fainting flank flank maneuver 
heading northward a few miles west of Corinth, ostensibly to fool Rosecrans into believing their real destination was Jackson, Tennessee, Grant's headquarters. The idea was to make a quick turn toward Corinth and surprise the Union forces with an assault from the north. The plot failed. Yankee scouts and advance pickets discovered and harassed the approaching rebels. On Friday, October 3rd, Van Dorn's troops did manage to shove the Corinth defenders back onto a line of last-ditch fighting along the inner defenses at the town's edge. They were stout positions which, ironically, the Southerners had painstakingly fashioned months earlier. And this is when Rogers' part of the battle comes into play. It is. But I'd like to start that with a, a story that emerged much later in May of 1912. That's when a Corsicana man who survived the Corinth bloodbath added a poignant note to the Rogers story. He wrote to one of the colonel's relatives, quote, A gentleman wrote up to me shortly before the Saturday assault, as fine a looking man I thought as I ever saw, dressed in a colonel's uniform. He got down off his horse and sat down and talked to us. He told me he was Colonel Rogers commanding the Second Texas, and that he dreaded going into the fight that day, for he had a presentiment the night before that he would be killed that day in battle, and he was. What do we know about Rogers and the final hours before his death? Well, as usual, unfortunately, the details of his death are hard to pin down, but a a composite of the accounts of witnesses on both sides provides this story. The Federals had a seven-mile, half-moon defense perimeter with several artillery units behind earthen parapets protected by plenty of infantry. The strongest point in the line was Fort Battery Robinette. Its earthworks were six feet thick and five feet high, with three openings for its heavy cannons. In a wide area in front, dozens of big trees had been cut, their tops pointing towards the attackers and their branches trimmed into sharp obstacles. And not only that, but a deep ditch lay at the base of the parapets. Hmm. Now, this was the deadly setting for the charge of the 2nd Texas, Dabney H. Morey's division, J.C. Moore's brigade. The brigade was badly undermanned, decimated by disease, Shiloh, and Friday's fight. Its ragged remnant of soldiers were hungry and thirsty and short on ammunition. They lined up grimly at about 10 a.m. that unusually hot October morning, knowing they would suffer in another type of heat, the heat of battle, before the day was over. One of Robinette's defenders wrote, Suddenly, we saw a magnificent brigade emerge in our front. They came in perfect order, a grand but terrible sight. At their head rode their commander, a man of fine physique in the prime of life, quiet and cool as though on a drill. The artillery opened and the infantry followed, and notwithstanding the slaughter, they were closer and closer. It was Rogers. It was, and unfortunately, it was a holocaust. Rogers' men clawed and scrambled over the fallen trees, artillery and rifle lead flying so thick around him it, it, could all, it could almost be seen. One of his men, taking cover under a tree trunk, actually said, I could have raised my fist and grabbed a dozen bullets. Mm. Waving the regimental colors from horseback, Colonel Rogers led the column, gauged his pace to match the steps of his men, and carried the colors aloft. 
The columns reached the ditch of the battery, and Rogers jumped his horse over the gap, dismounted, dashed up to the side of the battery where he planted the colors squarely upon the fort. Then bitter hand-to-hand fighting followed. Thirteen of the thirty-six men serving the guns of Battery Robinette were either killed or wounded in this desperate struggle. The Confederates took possession of Battery Robinette. But just that quickly, just that quickly, the tide turned against them. That's right. It turned instantly with a vengeance. Rogers' men then caught the first sight of a massive sea of blue uniforms moving toward them in a counterattack. Realizing the hopelessness of the situation, Rogers and Foster waved handkerchiefs to surrender their troops. Other Confederates about the fort, however, did not see the surrender sign and continued to fire into the mass of Union soldiers. And massive fire was returned on the Confederates at very close range. Colonel Rogers fell dead with 11 wounds. The remainder of the attacking Confederates fell back bringing with them their most prized possession, the regimental flag. Rogers, trying to save his men's lives, waved a handkerchief, but again, it was ignored. And at that point, he said one of two uh, historic lines, quote, we fought our way in here, men, let's fight our way out. Or, quote, they won't let us surrender, let's sell our lives dearly. Historian Bruce Catton in his landmark work, Grant Moves South, records, quote, A Union officer watched, fascinated, as a Texas colonel led his men straight up to the battery. He looked neither right nor left, neither at his men or at mine, but with his eyes partly closed, like one in a hailstorm. He was marching slowly and steadily upon us. This Texas colonel got clear into the battery and died amidst the guns. Powerful writing for a powerful image, Mark. It is. And uh, unfortunately, most accounts say Rogers was riddled with rifle bullets. Although General Rosecrans reported that he was, quote, shot by one of our drummer boys who, with pistol in hand, was helping defend Robinette. Um, No matter, half of the battery's 26 gunners were killed by Rogers and his attackers. But when the flag fell, Rogers somehow stood up, grabbed the fallen regimental flag from the fourth flag bearer to be killed that day, and pistol in hand scrambled atop the parapet to plant the colors. An Iowa soldier at Battery Robinette later wrote, General Rogers, with a flag in one hand and a revolver in the other, led them straight into one of the awful death traps of the war. And again, he and a few followers actually had brief control of the battery, before the enemy reinforcements closed in. There's actually a misty photograph that shows Roger's horse lying dead near the earthworks. After what you've all just told us, I'm curious to hear about the reaction from Colonel Roger's foes. One version says an admiring Yankee officer supposedly exclaimed, pointing at Roger's just before his death, quote, that man is too brave to die. Don't kill him. If so... (laughs) Obviously, nobody heeded him. The veteran warrior Rosecrans wrote, quote, It was about as good fighting on the part of the Confederates as I ever saw. He ordered that Rogers be given full military burial on the spot. By the way, Waco's Saul Ross lived through the battle, as did one of Rogers' sons, Halbert, who eventually graduated from Baylor. So what happened to Rogers' family and descendants after this? 
Well, the Rogers family shared in the suffering of the war and the Reconstruction. They moved back to Houston, and one night some drunken Yankee soldiers broke into their home and robbed them. It was a very traumatic experience. While one soldier held a pistol at Mrs. Rogers' heart, the other one searched the house, taking everything of value that they wanted. As they became more violent, Amy, one of the former slaves, called out that she would lead them to where they would find a, quote, chest full of gold. They quickly followed her to a neighbor's house where there were several men. A shooting followed, and the two Yankees were killed. Some of the jewelry they had stolen from the Rogers' home was found on the body of one of the dead men, and this jewelry is still in possession of some family members. Interesting. Still, Rogers' deeds gained some fame and recognition in the years to come. He certainly did. At uh, 10 a.m. on August 15, 1912, the Texas Division, United Daughters of the Confederacy, joined the Corinth UDC chapter in unveiling a tall battlefield monument to Rogers, and three of his grandchildren took part in the ceremonies. There's also a considerable Baylor heritage to celebrate as well. Bill Rogers never made it back to Houston or to Baylor, but six generations of his descendants have perpetuated his Baylor connection. Hmm. The Texas Collection's records show that one of his three daughters, Mrs. George Harris, was valedictorian of her 1858 class. As Baylor's oldest living graduate on October 11, 1928, she turned the first spade of soil at the groundbreaking for Memorial Dormitory. She was awarded an honorary degree at Baylor's Diamond Jubilee in 1920. Her sister, Margaret Houston Rogers Damon, was valedictorian of the class of 1873 and lived to be 100 years old, Baylor's oldest graduate to that date. Great-great-grandson John Moncrief Sanders of Houston graduated from Baylor in 1957, 100 years after William Rogers taught law at Baylor and earned his J.D. in 1960. His daughter Julie attended Baylor, and another great-great-great-grandson of Rogers, Douglas Johnson of Houston, transferred to Baylor. In, in 1981, the Rogers-slash-Sanders family was the very first family named to the list of Baylor first families. And all of Rogers' Baylor descendants, as a matter of fact, all Texans, can take pride in the words of General Van Dorn in his report of that weekend in Corinth. As long as courage manliness, fortitude, patriotism, and honor exist, the name of Rogers will be revered and honored among men. He sleeps, and glory is his sentinel. Mark, thank you. That is a great story on a remarkable hero who deserves, I think, to be better known today. He certainly does. Glad we could do our part. I'm Robert Darden, and thank you for joining us for another edition of Treasures of the Texas Collection. Texas Collection on the Baylor University campus has an extraordinary set of Texas-related documents, books, letters, photographs, memoirs, maps, and more. For more information, go to www.baylor.edu slash lib, L-I-B, slash Texas. Treasures of the Texas Collection has been made possible by generous grants from the Wardlaw Fellowship Fund for Texas Studies and by the Ferguson Clark Endowment Fund. This has been a production of KWBU 103.3 FM, public radio for Central Texas.